So we're in this series called What Would Jesus Undo? Now, my question is, how many of you remember these bracelets? Go ahead and bring that picture up. Anybody remember the bracelets from, from years ago? How many of you had a WWJD bracelet or you used to write W, whatever? Yeah, so I don't know if you know the story of where this idea came from, this idea of what would Jesus do, but in 1896, there was a pastor named Charles Sheldon who wrote a book called In His Steps. And in this book, he tells the story of pastoring a church, this, this guy that pastors a church, somebody walks in, a homeless person begins to speak to the church and say, you've ignored me, you've not paid attention, and I just don't know if this is what Jesus would be all about. And so this entire community of believers asks for the next couple of years, what would Jesus do about every decision they make? And it's a powerful book. You should read it. But in this series that we're in, I'm, I'm less interested in that question and more interested in asking, what would Jesus undo? You see, I think the question of what Jesus would do is really important, but I also think it's critical for us to ask what Jesus might unravel for us, what he would dismantle. I think it's important to consider what are the things that Jesus stood against? What are the things that, that maybe broke his heart and the things that he didn't like or, or, or that you think he said that he never really Said, And so that's what we're going to be talking about. So to start today, I want to share a story with you that starts with a question. Now, the question is this. If I gave you 42 weather balloons, a pellet gun, and a lawn chair, what would you do? I bet it wouldn't be what Larry Walters did back in 1982. In July of 1982, there was a man named Larry Walters who had had a lifelong dream of becoming an Air Force pilot. And he wanted to be an Air Force pilot, but when he applied to take the test, they found out his eyesight was poor, and he was not going to be allowed to join the Air Force. But that didn't discourage him from wanting to become a pilot. So in 1982, he and his girlfriend purchased 42 eight-foot weather balloons, several tanks of helium, and a pellet gun. And the idea was simple. He was going to attach the balloons in California to his garden-style lawn chair, he was going to fly about 30 feet up in the air, pack a parachute just in case, a radio, a pellet pistol to shoot out the balloon so when he wanted to come down, he could land. That's important. And he was going to sail across the desert to the Rocky Mountains. He also took sandwiches and beer because you've got to have the essentials. The problem was Larry didn't realize how quickly he would ascend. When the chair was cut loose, it began to ascend at a rate of about 1,000 feet per minute. Yeah. And so he ended up 16,000 feet in the air. Now, I don't know what you would think, but Larry was 16,000 feet in the air and scared. He actually was so nervous he dropped his glasses. That's not a good thing. And he had a bigger problem because at this point he was drifting into the flight path of incoming planes to L.A. airport. He radioed a mayday call, as you would told the, the operators that the problem was Larry settled down a little bit quickly and he said he realized I'm either going to fall to my death or I'm going to get sucked into a jet engine. I might as well enjoy the ride. And, and what happened even as he was flying is one TWA captain radioed the tower and said, there's a man in a chair with a gun. So after building up some courage, he worked up the nerve to shoot out several of the balloons. Now picture this, 16,000 feet in the air. You guys are thinking, why didn't he shoot him sooner? He was going fast. He was scared. You've done dumb things too. He begins to descend, and about 90 minutes after he took off, Larry's balloons and his tethers got caught in the power lines over the Long Beach neighborhood, shutting off the power in that neighborhood, but left him dangling just five feet off the ground where he jumped out of the chair and was promptly arrested by the LAPD. 
When the reporters asked, why did you make such a dumb decision? He said simply, a man cannot just sit around. (laughs) I want to talk to you today about the idea of happiness. I want to talk to you about what I think Jesus might want to undo in our lives is our idea of happiness. Have you ever made a less than intelligent decision because you thought it would make you happy? Yeah. I wasn't talking this week, but okay, I can hear that. Like you go to the mall and you just immediately, I have to have this. You, you enter into a relationship. You hook up with somebody because the happiness feels like it will be there. You decide I'm going to take this vacation because I will be happy once I get to vacation. See, here's what I think. I, I'm convinced that for many of us, the ideas that we have of happiness and what it takes to make us happy and how we obtain our happiness often put us in these moments just like Larry Walters where we're in a place going, what just happened? How did I end up here? And the problem is that all too often we haven't thought about where exactly our pursuit of happiness is going to take us. I want to paint a picture for you today of happiness as Jesus understood it. I want to put before you a way of thinking that I think may be counterintuitive to many of us, but I think is so critical and so biblical because it's going to undo a lot of what we believe will make us happy because Jesus' ideas of happiness don't look at all like our ideas of happiness. And that's a good thing because here's what I see in our world today. I don't know if you see this. Our ideas of happiness are not making us very happy. I don't know if you've caught that. For you, for me, for the culture as a whole, what we think is going to make us happy, anxiety, depression, fear, all of those things are at a higher rate historically than they've ever been, ever. There's a mental health crisis, many people would say. And before we get to Jesus' ideas, which is where we're going to end up, I want to break down what I think is the common view of happiness that our world holds today. And I believe it's spelled out even in Scripture. See, there's, there's this book in Scripture called Ecclesiastes. If you've never read it, it's a pretty dark book. It's a pretty heavy book. The writer is known as the preacher or the teacher. It's Solomon. And he, he goes around and he basically examines all these things in life, the careers and vocations and pleasure and, and relationships. And he basically, his conclusion is, it's all meaningless, He was not a fun guy to have at a party. But that's kind of what he says. It's all meaningless. And in in Ecclesiastes 2, there's there's this way of thinking that this writer begins to spell out by talking exactly about pleasure and happiness. I want to share with you a paraphrase of these verses now. Here's what it says. Come now. The writer says, come now. I'll make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. He says, we're going to dig into this thing called pleasure and happiness, and we're going to test it. And then he says this. I'm going to pursue pleasure. I'm going to have more joy than anyone has ever had. The first thing I will do is organize the world around me to suit my taste. I'll construct great houses so I'll have everything absolutely at my convenience. I'll make vineyards and gardens so what I want to look at and what I want to taste will be completely under my control. I'll fashion parks and pools so all the land and water around me will be just the way I want them. I will take absolute control by arranging everything exactly the way I want it. So you could say this, the guy had a big privacy fence and a lot of land. And he says, I'm gonna do whatever I want in this land. Then he says this, the next thing I will do is turn everything I have into a commodity so I can use it my own way. And the most convenient way to do that is simply to multiply. Each item will lose its individual quality and be under my control. I will multiply servants or slaves so each loses identity and becomes a mere robot doing my will. I will multiply flocks and herds so they lose individuality and become simply food and clothing. I will multiply silver so it's not a means for exchanging good and personal relation with others, but will put my power and my importance on display. I will multiply concubines. I was with him till the concubine. Okay, I was like, that sounded pretty fun, but no. Then he says, so each woman loses personality and becomes an object for my personal pleasure. 
And then he says this, the world will be at my beck and call. I will be in complete control of every pleasure and everything. And then he says this, having arranged the world, I will indulge in it completely. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure or happiness. Now, here's why I think this is so important, because I think what he's saying defines the way that our world sees and equates happiness and pleasure. See, first of all, our world says this, happiness equals you. Happiness equals you. That's, that's the conclusion of what our world says about pleasure or happiness. Happiness equals what you want it to. See, you, if you are in control of happiness, you're in control. You are the one who is in control. You get to set the rules. You get to drive happiness yourself. Solomon, in this passage, he says, my eyes told me what to do. So whatever I saw, I did it. You ever been up late at night and seen those infomercials that come on? Like the whirly gig. I don't know. I mean, we talked first service about the Floby. Anybody remember the Floby? The vacuum haircut sucker? You know what I'm talking about? If you know John Allen, he's an expert. You need to ask him about his Floby experience. But, but see, I remember at, at one point in my life, I was like one of those late nights I couldn't sleep. I don't know if I was stressed or what, but I'm watching TV and all of a sudden I get to the infomercial channel. Here's the thing. At 7 p.m., I skip the infomercial, right? When I'm rational and I'm well-fed and I'm, I'm not tired, I skip the infomercial. At 1 a.m., when I can't sleep and I'm lonely and I'm irrational, the infomercial's awesome, do you know what I'm talking about? Like you turn on the infomercial. Here's what I found. Five minutes into the infomercial, I was going, I gotta have this. My life is not complete without the whirly gig, whatever it is. I have to have it. I will not be happy until I have it. And that's where my mind went. Because at that point, happiness equaled me. It was all about what I wanted. Now, here, here's the thing, and this is the infomercial lesson too, the second part of this. When happiness equals you, happiness will take over you. See, I sat down to the, to the infomercial and I said, oh, that, and, and now I'm obsessed with it. 1995, three payments of 1995, that's amazing. And I get a bonus back scratcher. Do you know what I'm talking about? When happiness is all about me, now you guys are laughing like you've never been in this situation. I've seen you all at the mall at Christmas. You're piranhas. You go to buy gifts and you come home with stuff for yourself. You, when happiness equals you, it will take over you. Eugene Peterson, who, who translated the message version of the Bible, he says this, the world of pleasure that Solomon has depersonalized so he could control it. See, remember he said, I'm gonna have all this stuff and they're just gonna become robots and commodities. It doesn't matter. He says the world of pleasure that he has depersonalized so he can control it now depersonalizes him. He began by arranging the world for his pleasure and now he is part of the arrangement. Think about it this way. What would you do if you won the lottery? I know none of you play the lottery, Right? Uh, you do, because about 20 of you come up to me weekly and are like, if I win the lottery, we'll build a building. And I'm like, let's just tithe and get the building sooner. <laughs> I wonder if that joy would be there for long, right? I wonder about that because there's this study where they took 22 famous lottery winners and 22 months after they won, they studied their happiness and compared it to 22 other people who had not ever won the lottery and they found they both kind of had the same level of happiness. 
Some were, that, that had won the lottery were sadder than they had been before. But, but here's what they found. Our emotions don't necessarily improve when our circumstances improve. And we know that to be true, right? That scientists would call this the hedonic treadmill. Now, I know that's a big word, but let me explain what this means. What they find when they study happiness, by the way, this is a science, happiness science, right? When they study happiness, they find that most all human beings have a base level of happiness. No matter our circumstances, most of us have a level of happiness. Some of us are sadder than others. Some of us are naturally really joyful people. But, but what they found is, is that this, this level of happiness doesn't change. In fact, when our circumstances change, hedonic adaptation says you will adapt to the circumstances. And so the hedonic treadmill says, I want that, I watch the infomercial. I want it. You kids know this word, right? You know this word. I want it. We understand that. But when we get it, do we climb off the treadmill and go, oh, this is so great. Life's perfect. No. We set it aside and we keep running on the treadmill. See, that's what happiness is like, that there's this base level that adapts to our circumstances. My point is this. And I think it echoes what Solomon says here. And you know this to be true. When happiness is contingent on you, it's like Santa's bag. It's an endless vortex that will never be filled up. You'll never get enough. You'll never have enough. You'll never achieve enough. And here's the third thing that that means when it comes to happiness in our world. See, our world fundamentally at its core level pursues happiness that is based on us. You can look anywhere in the culture, in your world. Our world pursues happiness that is based on us, on me, on what I can achieve. We celebrate, right? I, I, I was surfing through Instagram this week, right? And I see somebody, oh, I just gave up all this stuff. I just left. I just put everything aside. I'm taking care of me. I'm going to get my dream, my hope, my thing. And all these people are, oh, congratulations. We're so proud of you. You're an inspiration. Da, 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 da. And I'm thinking, you just did the most selfish thing humanly possible. You just cast aside everything, and now you've got fanboys and girls cheering you on because that's our world. It's all about us. It's all about what makes us happy. And this is where we come to Jesus, and the first thing that I think Jesus wants to undo some of the conceptions we have about happiness. See, I want to show you a speech today that, that Jesus gives. It's actually his longest start of the, the start of his longest speech throughout Scripture. Right? It's the Sermon on the Mount, and this is kind of the intro, right? So I gave you the Larry Walters story. That's so you didn't get bored till now, okay? This is his Larry Walters start, and he does it in this way. Matthew 5, here's what it says. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Here's what it says. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, how many of you have heard that statement before? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Here's what I want you to grab onto today. This word, blessed, all right? Everybody say blessed. blessed. It's a very Christian word, right? It's a very churchy word. I would say it's not a very captivating word. In, in many ways, we hear this, we're kind of like blessed, blessed. If you're King James, blessed, right? Like that's kind of what we have. But what I want you to grab onto is that I think we've misunderstood really what Jesus is getting at because he is talking about blessings, but the word there in Greek is makarios. Everybody say makarios, because it's fun. Here's what it means. It, it can mean blessed, but it actually means happy or fortunate. So Jesus is looking at a crowd of peasants, farmers, fishermen, and he's saying, I'm going to tell you how to be happy. I'm not going to talk to you about hashtag blessings. I'm going to talk to you about happiness. I want to talk to you about what it means to be happy 
people. So here's what he says. I'm gonna read this to you and I'm gonna substitute the word happy every time it says blessed. And I wish we had the song, I'm so happy, because I thought that would be fun. We're gonna move past it. Here we go. Verse three. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, happy are you when people insult you. What? <laughs> Persecute you. Oh, yeah. And falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you now this is the interaction part of the morning what do you notice about these things just shout it out what do you notice yeah they don't make a lot of sense right you're you're saying jesus you're saying i'm happy i'm fortunate i'm blessed when i'm being persecuted when people are lying about me you're saying i'm happy when i mourn You're happy when I'm poor in spirit? That doesn't make any sense. So I think we could say this. Happiness, according to Jesus, does not equal you. If happiness is contingent on you, then none of those things that Jesus says are true. Happiness actually is a result of life in God's kingdom. See, what Jesus spells out, he says, if you want to experience happiness, you've got to understand it starts with my kingdom. And I'll explain that to you in a few minutes. So here's what I would say. What what does this mean for you today? Here's what I would say. The secret of happiness, this is gonna sound like common sense, is to stop it, okay? Now, I reference that. Here's what I hear in my head. Years ago, there was a Bob Newhart skit on on TV, and he plays a psychiatrist. And this, this sweet lady walks in. She says, I've got a problem. I've got all this stuff. I'm really afraid. I'm really anxious. Uh, and he goes, well, here's the deal. I'm gonna give you your solution. It's only two words. This is how you're gonna get over your problem. I'm about to help you. And she goes, well, should I write it down? And he goes, I, if you need to, but most people can remember two words. Get ready. Here it comes. And he looks at her and he goes, stop it. She goes, what are you talking about? He goes, stop it. Here's what I think. The secret of happiness, are you ready? Say it with me, is to... Stop it. All right, here's what we stop. Number one, stop pursuing pleasure as the end goal. Stop pursuing pleasure as the end goal. See, I want to say this to you. There's nothing wrong with pleasures in our life. Pleasures are gifts to be enjoyed. But the problem is pleasures are gifts to be enjoyed. They're not goals to be pursued. They're not the goal to be pursued. So what the pursuit of pleasure does, now some of you think, well, I don't struggle with this. Really, okay, let's talk about your summer. What's the new toy you're gonna buy this summer? What's the new thing you have on your list that is gonna keep you from being in church 16 Sundays this summer? Let's, let's be honest about my struggle, okay? What, what's the thing that you have on your list? If I can just get this, if I can just buy this, if I can just accomplish this, if we can just go here, if I can just marry this person, if I can just get unmarried to this person, whatever the pursuit of pleasure is in your life, is it the end goal? Is it the thing that you think if you can just get there, do this, buy that, end this, whatever it is, that everything's gonna be okay? Because here's what I wanna say to you. The pursuit of pleasure leads to a swamp of boredom. It's a thing that leaves you high and dry and just going, oh man, like I'm just bored out of my mind. Every kid feels this on Christmas morning. Parents, do you know what I'm talking about? Do you see your kids and how much you can (laughs) barely contain them on Christmas morning and then 10 minutes after Christmas is over, I'm bored. 
Aren't you glad we as adults are so much better than that? We're not, right? We're not. It's the swamp of boredom. I I would say this. Your pleasures will not and cannot fill you up because they're not the true appetite that you have. You are not truly craving the pleasure. You're craving something deeper than the pleasure. Your true appetite is for God. And so here's what happens. When you take the things that God has created for our pleasure, because the scripture said that, every good and perfect gift is from God. When, God has, when you take the pleasures that God has given us and you put them in the place of God, that's called idolatry. We have put something in the place of God that does not belong there. I would say this, it's possible to accept all the gifts of life and enjoy them completely only if you refuse to make gods out of them. When you make them the God of your life, they will not fill you up. So stop it. Here's the second thing. Stop trying to purchase pleasure. See, we've got to end that in our heads in our hearts. Stop trying to purchase pleasure. See, joys, joy itself cannot be purchased. It can only be received. Joy is something you receive and you embrace and it comes to you. You cannot purchase joy. Some of you are like, yeah, but you don't know. I want that model. It's amazing. No, you can't purchase it. C.S. Lewis, the great theologian, wrote an amazing book. If you, don't, if you get a chance, read it. It's called The Screwtape Letters. In the screw tape letters, he talks about the demons and how the demons is a fictional account and kind of this witty book about how demons conspire to get in the way of Christianity. And in this book, he, he talks about a demon who has the job of keeping one man from becoming a Christian. Well, the demon fails miserably. The man becomes a Christian and the demon reports back to his demon boss. And the boss says this, never forget that when we're dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemies, on God's ground. And I love this. Pleasure is his invention, not ours. God made the pleasures. God's a hedonist at heart. Everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. Nothing is naturally on our side. That's the call of the demons. See, I want to say this to you. Sin, the brokenness in our world, is the twisting of the pleasures that God has given to us. I I hope you see this. In Genesis 1, we could preach Genesis 1 and 2 for years. Here's what it says. God creates, and everything creates. He says, it's good, it's good, it's good. The animals, they're good. The stars, they're good. The sun, the moon, it's good. The plants, all of that stuff is good. Man and woman together, naked, making babies. That's good, amen? That's good. Some of you just got really uncomfortable. What happens, though, is that the enemy twists the good, the pleasure, into something that goes against God. So friends, lust, pornography, is taking the good gift of sex and twisting it. We have the gift of words to affirm life into people. You know what that feels like to have someone speak life into you. Gossip twists our words and tears people down. It's the twisting of the gifts and the pleasure that has pulled us away from God. Stop thinking that you can purchase those things and receive the gifts that God has given. Here's the third thing. Stop thinking happiness is limited to good circumstances. And this is so hard. I just, I wanna be completely honest with you, so upfront, but we have convinced ourselves as human beings that if our circumstances are good, we can be happy. And what the Beatitudes, what those statements of Jesus speak to us is to say you can be happy no matter the circumstances because the kingdom of God is at work no matter where you are. You can find fortune and happiness when you're, pure, when you're poor in spirit, when you're grieving, when you're mourning, when you're meek, when, when you're being persecuted. Happiness can still come because happiness is not the pursuit. Happiness is the condition of the kingdom of God. 
Now, I worked really hard this week on some drawings to demonstrate for you exactly what I'm talking about, okay? So go ahead to the next slide. I want to break this down for you. This is my friend, Happy Guy, okay? This is Happy Guy. This is the guy that functions in our world and and I think loves white American Jesus who says, go after things you love. Everything's going to be okay. Happiness is the pursuit, Now, here's what happens in this type of world. If happiness is the pursuit, do you know what that puts me? That makes me, happy guy, the center of the universe. The universe revolves around me, and my happiness is the pursuit, and so all that I want to try to do is input as many things into my life that make me, what? Happy, because I'm so happy. I feel happy. If the inputs are good, then I will be happy. So happy guy says, I always have to have more. Because I'm on this treadmill, this hedonic treadmill, and everything's going, 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 going. So I need more friends, right? I need more fun, more money, more sex, and more stuff. And if I get all of those inputs, then I will be happy. The more of those inputs I get, the happier I'm going to be. The problem is when circumstances change, when the inputs aren't coming in, what happens to happiness? I'm not happy guy. I'm sad guy. Are you with me? This is what I think. I think Jesus says that's a lie. Right? That's not the way our world works. So let me show you the next slide, and we're going to break down these Beatitudes. This is a little more scientifically complex. Okay? This took me like 20 minutes instead of 10. Here's where Jesus starts. Jesus starts with life, the center yellow bubbly thing. And at the center of life is not just me, but all of us. We all experience life together, amen? Some of you have really good lives right now. Some of you have really crappy lives. Some of you are facing things. Some of you are not facing things. But we're all experiencing life. Jesus assumes you are in the middle of life. Are you in the middle of life? You are. Okay, so here's what he says. First, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, happy are the poor in spirit. How does that make sense? He says, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Friends, by the way, this is where the good news of Jesus Christ starts, is when you recognize that you can't save yourself. That your glass, no matter how many Oprah shows you watch, how many self-help books you read, how many things you input into your life, you are poor in spirit. Your glass is half empty. In fact, it's completely empty because you can't do it. You are poor in spirit. He says there's a condition there when you recognize, man, anybody that's come to Christ, by the way, I think would echo this. It's a great relief to realize I don't have to save myself, amen? It's exhausting trying to make myself perform and live up to standard. He says happy are the poor in spirit. Now, here's what I would follow that with. What happens when we realize our poverty of spirit, how broken we are? Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. See, this posture says, I'm poor in spirit, and because of that, I'm gonna grieve the weight of my sin. I'm gonna mourn what, what, what God has, has shown me about myself, but in the midst of my mourning, I'm gonna be comforted because God is meeting me there. And then he says this, happy are the meek. Now that, that's a headless, or that's a bodiless, headless, headless body, head, bodiless head, that's what it is. Been a long morning. And that's the weight of the world coming down on that person. See, what is meekness? You know what meekness is? Meekness is not, oh, I just have to take everything, it's all okay, oh, just beat me up. It's, it's power under control. Meekness says, I will step into this situation, recognize that though I'm poor in spirit and though I've mourned, now I've been comforted and now I can realize that the world may come down on me, but God's power supports me. He says, blessed, happier the meek, for they will inherit, what? The earth. 
Even though the world is coming down on you, God says, I'm gonna give you the earth when you recognize who you are. And then he says, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. See, when we recognize our own brokenness and we grieve that and we're comforted and then we see what God wants to do in us, then we start to long for God's grace and God's goodness to be poured out all over the world. God, would you make things well? Would you make things right? Would you put an end to the injustice? Would you put an end to the suffering? Would you comfort all of the, God, what does that look like? And by the way, these are the first four. This is the first half of the Beatitudes. There are eight of them total. I believe these first four are all about us saying, man, we just need to be still and know that God is God. Do you notice that none of these circumstances sound very happy? <laughs> oh, blessed or happy are those who get all the toys. Happy are those who get all the money. No, these are about the people who recognize life is breaking them down and it's hard. Here's what I know. Some of you, that's where you are right now. Some of you, that's what you're facing some of you, that's one of these or all of these. That's what you feel. You feel poor in spirit. You feel grief. You feel meek. You feel like you just want God to set things right in the world or your world. And maybe the answer in these beatitudes is to say, no, I just gotta be still and know that God is God because happiness is not the pursuit. Happiness is a condition. And then here's the final diagram I wanna show you. Because the next four God fills us up and begins to pour us out into the world. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, here's what God says, happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. When you show mercy to the world, God's gonna show you mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That means no matter what part of the world you're in, no matter how broken it is, no matter where your circumstances lie, you see purity, you go, God, I know you have better things for this. And God says, I will show you myself. Happy are the peacemakers, Happy are those who are entering the world, setting things right, making peace, making reconciliation. Happy are those who are persecuted. Friends, these four show me why every time I go to a third world country, I come back going and hearing people go, why are they so happy? They don't have Starbucks. Because they recognize the reality of these. These are people living in the world in a way that pours themselves out. So if the first four are about being still and knowing that God is God, then the second four are about standing up and going, God, what is your mission for me? And, and here's what I know. Some of you are in the first four. Some of you are ready for the second four. Some of you are here and you barely crawl in the door and you're feeling broken and you're going, God, I just need you to fill me up. Just meet with me here. And some of you are ready to, to be the hands and the feet of Jesus poured out to the world. And I wanna say, that's the beauty of what makes us the church. That's the thing that pulls us together. Because happiness happens in all those places. There's a, there's a story of a pilot, and, I, and I'm gonna start to wind down with this. The pilot was practicing high-speed maneuvers in a jet fighter. And the pilot, she turned the controls for th what, what she thought was gonna be this steep ascent into the air. And here's what happened. She flew straight into the ground, crashed her plane, because she was unaware that she'd been flying upside down the entire time. And that story, I think, is, is a story of human existence in our world right now. That many of us, the way we're living life, the happiness, the pleasure that we're pursuing, the things we're driving our energy into, it, we think is gonna fill us up, and we think it's gonna get us where we're going, and we think we're gonna ascend that ladder, and what it does is ends up winding us down and crashing into the ground. Because we think that that's what's gonna fill us up, and it never does. It never does. See, what Jesus does with these blessing statements, these happiness statements, is he turns our plane over and says, I'm gonna show you the right way to fly. There's a different way of flying that isn't about happiness as the pursuit. It's about happiness as a condition. So my challenge to you today is this. Which one of these beatitudes do you feel like you're facing? 
Which one of these conditions do you feel like you're walking through right now? Are you in that place where you would say, I'm poor in spirit, I'm grieving, I'm meek, I'm, I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and God just wants to say to you, just be still and know that I'm God. Or are you in a place where you're longing to pour out mercy to the world? You're longing to make peace in places that need peace. Maybe that's your family. Maybe that's your relationships. Whatever it is, what is it? Where is it that God has you? Because here's what I know. Friends, some of you are flying upside down looking for happiness, and it's never going to come as long as that's your pursuit. So Larry Walters gained his five minutes of fame. He became known as Lawn Chair Larry. I'm going to have Josh go ahead and come to you. And Lawn Chair Larry ended up on the late night talk shows. I think he was with Letterman and Leno and both of the, he got to be interviewed. He got to, to share his stuff. He even won a Darwin Award. You know what a Darwin Award is? It's given to the stupid people of the year. <laughs> the Bonehead Club of Dallas awarded him their number one prize. He quit truck driving. He tried his hand as a motivational speaker. That didn't last. He appeared on some game shows in a Timex ad. He was even asked by the Smithsonian to give up his lawn chair. He'd already given it away to a little boy, but he was asked. But when those five minutes were up, Walter's pursuits kind of left him crashing. He walked into a national park, into one of the most secluded parts of the park, and he shot himself in the heart and killed himself. Friends, I, I can't tell you how many people that I meet with, and while they may not get to that point, they have crashed because they thought happiness was gonna get them where they wanted to go. They thought pleasure was the pursuit. They thought the things they were going after were gonna get them what they wanted, and it never did. So I wonder if today might be the day where you finally climb off this treadmill and you stop chasing this goal of happiness and start to chase the kingdom of God. I wonder if corporately we could say, you know what, maybe we've had it all wrong. Maybe happiness isn't the end goal. Maybe it's an overflow of life in the kingdom. Maybe there's actually blessing to be found, happiness of a different sort in the midst of mourning, in the midst of persecution, or emptying yourselves for the sake of mercy and compassion. Maybe dad's in the room. Listen, dad's, maybe your goal isn't to keep your family happy by getting all the money and buying all the stuff they want. Maybe it's not about that. Maybe moms, it's not the noble pursuit you think it is to always have everything all together and perfect and nice and neat well-organized and a good smile on your face. Maybe students, the cycle of trying to figure out how to make the most money and still be content isn't the sole purpose of your life. Maybe if you're single and you're here, happiness isn't wrapped up in who you end up with, but a posture you step into right now. See, I wonder if today God could turn our planes back the right way so we're flying right side up instead of valuing the things that God doesn't call us to value. As we close, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing this song together. And this song speaks these words that we will praise God no matter where we are, no matter what we're facing. But I'm asking you as a congregation that is the church to be the church today. See, some of you identify with those first four beatitudes. You go, yeah, I'm I know I'm broken. I know I'm poor in spirit. I'm walking through grief right now. I'm feeling meek right now. I'm longing for God to make some things right, to, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And as we sing, here's what I'm gonna ask of you. If you're willing to let your posture reflect that, maybe sit, just stay seated. Just let God speak into your hearts. Maybe you wanna come to the altar and kneel or you wanna kneel at your chair, that's fine. But let your posture be honest, be transparent about the condition of your heart. But then maybe you're here and you would say, you know what, I, I'm in that second half of those, ha those beatitude statements. I'm in a place where I wanna pour out mercy. 
I want to pour out compassion. I want to make peace. I want to be pure in heart. I want God to show me what he has for me. I want to be used in different places. And if that's you, then I'd invite your posture to reflect that by standing, maybe by opening your hands, maybe by lifting your hands, saying, God, I'm all yours. Because here's the picture that I see when that happens. The church is full of people who are broken, and the church is full of people who want to be poured out. And the church is the church because of all those things. And happiness, joy in the kingdom of God can enter into all of those places. If you're able to stand, maybe you need to find somebody in this room who's not able to stand, put a hand on their shoulder and pray for them to be a friend, to be a family member. I see this in families, right? Half of us are broken, half of us are joyful. It's the beauty of God's kingdom. But in the midst of our desert and on the top of our mountains, we're gonna praise God no matter what, amen? So let's pray together.